time we would like to dismiss the kindergarten and first graders? Uh, if you're a visitor to Christ Community Church, let me first say that I am not the pastor. Uh, I'm one of the elders. I'm Mark the Cosmaker. Our pastor, as you may have heard in the announcement, is in Haiti with a group of about 20 uh, of the congregation serving a, a, on a mission trip. But uh, before he left, Pastor Paul helped me prepare for the sermon. And uh, he gave me three really important pieces of advice. He said, if you're going to give a sermon, he said, the first thing you need to do is really make sure you have clear in your mind what you want to say. He said, the second thing is try not to do too much. Just try to stay on just two or three important points and just kind of carry those throughout your sermon. And he said, third and most important. Finish the sermon just before the congregation wonders when you're going to finish the sermon. (laughs) So you'll have to tell Pastor Paul how I did. Uh, The two points I'm going to try and make today are that all tests, all the temptations that we will face in this life, when you strip away all the disguises, all the things that we put in front of ourselves to make them appear to be something else or other choices, they really all come down to just one question. And that question is, who will you serve? Will we serve the things that we love in this world, comfort, security, money, peace? Will we chase after those things? Will we serve ourselves or will we serve God? So it's one question with only one answer. God or not God? The second point I wanted to make is that God used testing. He uses temptation as a way to bless his children, those on whom he has set his affection. That in testing, God sees if we are ready, if we are prepared to be used to his glory. In a sense, he uses this as a way to help us be holy. He shows us the consequences of our choices, both good and bad. And in that, we see his grace. Because sometimes when we make the good choice or the bad choice, the way we understand that is because he points us to the cross. And the final thing is God uses tests to prepare us for the more difficult tests for the more difficult choices that we will have to make in our life. To demonstrate these points, I'm going to use three sets of tests. I'm going to talk about the nation of Israel as they wandered through the desert. I'm going to talk about Adam in the garden. And obviously, we're going to talk about Christ in the wilderness. Thirty years after God became incarnate as a baby child. He set out to begin the work of his father. And the first thing he did was he went to the River Jordan where he met John the Baptist. And John sees him coming. And he looks at him and he says, 
I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Because John was baptizing the baptism of righteousness. He was calling people to repent. And he looked at Christ and he knew there was no need for Christ to repent. Christ says, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. You see, Christ was going to start by becoming obedient to the law. By submitting to God. And so what we see is Christ being baptized. And as he comes out of the water, we see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. We see the voice of God saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. We see the full Godhead, the Trinity in this one place. I think about a spiritual experience and how how could you be above that? That's the summit. God is affirming your decision to be obedient. And then the next thing we read is that the Holy Spirit leads him to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And in the book of John, it says the Holy Spirit drove him. There was some urgency to what was happening. To me, the timing seemed kind of strange. Here you have this massive affirmation of God that you're that he's pleased with you. And then he drives you out. In my preparation, one of the commentators said he said it was interesting how often it seems that believers are faced with very difficult tests just before or just after they receive a blessing. So I looked at that and I said, so but why is Jesus driven into the wilderness to be tempted? And I think some of it has to do with the word tempt. I mean, today we hear tempt and we're thinking of that Christ was being enticed. Somebody's being tempted, enticed to do something forbidden, to do something wrong. But in this context, it can also mean tested in the sense of proving or being purified or being ready, made ready for a task. And if we look in the Old Testament, we see this is something that God does, something that he's always done. God tests his servants to be sure that they're ready to be used. We could look at the example of Abraham. God made Abraham a promise. But then he also tested him by asking him if he would give his son in sacrifice to the Lord, the son who was the fulfillment of a promise. And Abraham was willing. And in that same way that God tested Abraham, God tests Adam in the garden. He tests the nation of Israel in the desert. And he's going to test Jesus in the wilderness. It's the same reason God tests us today. He was calling them as he calls us to be holy. Not holy in the sense of of we're talking about charity or generosity or piety, but holiness in the sense of separate. Holiness means being separate, set aside for God, just as God is holy. He says, you shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, 
am holy and has separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Just like a vessel in the temple, an urn was used for God's service. That's how we're being called set aside to that service. So Jesus is driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he's going to fast for 40 days. And we're told he's hungry. Uh, And if you fast for 40 days, you would certainly be hungry. I have fasted for seven days and an interesting thing happens. Everything you watch on television is a commercial about food after you fast seven days. It might look like a car, but they're eating or they're driving to a restaurant. You can make a direct connection to food immediately. And I think one of the things we look at that is we consider that Christ is driven into the desert as we see this. And we think that it's a test about previation. It's a test about the desire to have something. But before I make that point, I want to take a little side detour here real quick. I thought it was interesting that Jesus was driven into the wilderness. And then he had to wait for 40 days for his testing to begin. Says the Holy Spirit drove him to be tested, tempted by the devil. I think there's some sense in which Christ may have known why he was there. Or maybe he didn't. But he had to wait 40 days. He knew he went to where God wanted him to be. And then nothing happened. This is something that I can relate to. And maybe some of you have or will find yourself in a place like that. You feel like God is speaking to you. He's telling you what to do. You pray. And then in obedience, you head in that direction. Then silence. And it's really easy to say, you know, God, I'm doing what you told me to do. Where are you? Why are doors not opening? Why are things not happening? It's really easiest for us to say, you need to do your part because I'm doing my part. But Christ didn't do that. Christ went to the wilderness in obedience and then he stayed in obedience. And I think part of that is also what he was doing. We know that he fasted. Fasting is not the same thing as not eating. Fasting is not dieting. Fasting is a spiritual discipline in which you're purifying yourself. You're making yourself holy. You're focusing on God. So he's fasting and he's preparing. And he's simply waiting on God. And I think that's something that can be important to us as we travel through and as we face different things in our lives is that we can know that when we're faced with that same situation, that we can remember that sometimes waiting is part of the test. That sometimes waiting is part of the preparation. And that sometimes waiting is part of the blessing. So as we're about to begin the actual part of the sermon, I'd like to think about the three parties, the three people, groups that I'm going to talk about in the test and where they were. Adam, it says God put Adam in the garden. We know God led Israel into the desert, literally led them in the form of fire 
and a cloud. He led them into the desert. And God drove Christ through the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. So we have three parties that are called to be holy. They are called apart to God's service. And where we're going to start our journey with them and to look at them, we will know that they are all exactly where God wants them to be at the exact time God wants them to be there. And then we're going to see how they're tested. So in the first temptation, you see Satan coming and he says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus answers, it is written. Now, when he says it is written, we can take that to mean he's saying it's in the Bible. But another way you can translate that exactly is, thus saith the Lord. He's saying, God said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So I think as we try to figure out what the first temptation is, whether it's about something physical or whether it's about just the need for bread, we have to look at what Christ's answer is. Now, the audience for this gospel would have been the first century church. And at that time, a significant percentage of the body would have been Jewish believers. Believers who saw Christ as the fulfillment of the prophecies, as the Messiah. And in rabbinical tradition, there is a thing where they would give you a part of a broader passage with the expectation you would understand the context and you would understand what he was meaning. It would be like if a bunch of guys were out doing something and one of them had to leave to go make a phone call or something. And he says, I'll be back. So that was Arnold Schwarzenegger, if you did not. Uh, So we would understand what he was saying, what kind of joke that was. Whereas somebody not from our culture who hadn't seen the movies might not get it. So when Jesus says man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That audience would have understood that what he was saying to Satan was he was reminding the audience of Deuteronomy. When Moses is saying to the nation of Israel, God is testing us. So they're thinking of a passage where they're seeing the nation of Israel being led out of slavery. That God took them across the Red Sea because he promised to deliver them. To a land of milk and honey. And then they get into the desert. And they start to grumble. And they turn to Moses and say. Did you bring us into the desert to die of hunger? And you know what's interesting. A, a, a week or two weeks ago in one of his sermons. Pastor Paul said. You know grumbling. Is the first step in turning to idols. Because what we're saying is we don't trust in God. And that's what they're doing. They're forgetting the fact that in Egypt, they were in slavery. That the Pharaoh was murdering their firstborn sons. That they were oppressed. And what they're saying instead is, you know, back in Egypt, we had fish. We had pots of cucumbers and leeks. And now out here we got nothing. They were prepared to go back into slavery for cucumbers. 
So I think the reason that Jesus gives Satan that answer is because he's making it clear that he understands the question isn't about food. What he's being asked is, who do you trust? The nation of Israel said, we don't trust in the promise for you to deliver us to the promised land. Their answer was, when asked, who do you trust, was not God. Now, as I was preparing for the sermon, I asked myself this one question. As I'm trying to pull these things together, I said, but Israel was tested by God. Why is it that Jesus is tested and tempted by Satan? And I said, you know, I think the answer can be found in 1 Corinthians, where it tells us that Jesus is the last Adam. Adam was tested by Satan. Adam fell. And as death came into the world through him, life comes only through Christ. So that what we're seeing is Jesus has to be tempted by the same tempter. He has to face the same tests so that we can know he is the last Adam. And so I think that's what we're seeing in the garden. Adam is given headship over the entire garden. God says, everything in here is yours. You can eat of anything here except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And should you eat of that tree, you shall not eat for in that day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And then along comes the serpent. And he says to Eve, and I know we always think about Eve, but we know that Adam is right there. Because after she eats of it, she hands it to him. He can't be further than that far away. So the serpent says, blizzard up and says, now, Surely you won't die. I mean, come on. Would, would God put that here and then you would die? Come on. Think about it. And it says that the woman looked at it and saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes. And the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took up the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Fundamentally, they didn't trust God. Because here's the thing. If I put a bottle, a, a, a cup of arsenic right here, that you know when you drink it, you're going to die. And I tell you, that's what it is. And you go out and you mow the lawn and you're really hot. and You come in, and I said, hey, knock some down. If you believe that that's what that is, there is nothing that can be said that will make you drink it. Fundamentally, when they were asked, who do you trust? They said, not God. So let's look at the consequences. How does God deal with the consequences of our disobedience? Well, Adam and Eve didn't trust God. And we know that sin came in the world and death for the first time came into the world. But, but what was God's response to that? And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. They were naked and God clothed them. Now, there are some that say in that we see the first forward looking of Christ because 
Where do you get animal skins except through sacrifice? I don't know if that's true, but what I do know is they were naked and God clothed them. He provided for them. And then he gave them a promise. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, because we have the light of the New Testament, we can look back on that. And that passage is called the Proto-Evangelum. In other words, it's called the first beginnings of the gospel in which you can see that the seed is Christ. And that he is going to bound Satan at the cross with his death and redeem us. So what we have is their disobedience and God pours out a blessing to them. What happened to the nation of Israel? They're in the desert. God is right there in front of them and he's providing for them. And they say, you know, we're not happy. Do something. Well, we read that he gives them meat in the form of birds. That he gives them bread in the form of manna, which literally is bread falling from heaven. Something that they've never known. And then not only does he give them manna, but he gives them manna daily. Six days a week. Literally their daily bread. Six days a week. On the sixth day, he gives them a double portion so that they will not gather on the Sabbath, which is his day. As a reminder that they can trust in the Lord to provide for them. And then he gives them another promise. He says, the reason I am providing this for you is as a test. To see if you will follow in my commands. To see if you will have a heart for me. So he promises them that he's going to be with them. And that he is going to test them to see if they'll follow. In Jesus, he recognizes the question. And he makes the right choice. He chooses God. But it's kind of interesting when you compare that to the other two parties. They were disobedient and God gives a blessing to them. God gives them literally what they asked for. What does Jesus get? He gets another temptation. So let's look at that second temptation. It says the devil took Jesus to a holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. So he's at the top of the temple. And it says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands will they bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. Satan does something that many enemies of God would do. He takes God's word and he twists it. He uses it out of context. He tries to make it say something he doesn't say. But Christ is the word and he knows the word. And so he answers with God's word. So how do we get from throw yourself off a temple? You're in God's house. You should be protected. Throw yourself off and he'll protect you. How do we get from that to a question of who do you serve? Who will you serve? Well, I think the answer once again is in. Jesus's response, it says, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to test. Once again, the first century audience would have thought of Deuteronomy. Because 
We left them in the desert where God had provided for them and he had given them manna. And then we read just a little bit later, they go on and they start grumbling again. And their grumbling is so aggressive that Moses has to go to God and said, they are going to stone me if you don't give them water. They had already forgotten the promise of God that he tested to see where their heart is, to see if they would follow his commands. They had already forgotten the meat. They're getting daily bread and they choose to ignore that. They're literally saying to God, yeah, but what have you done for me lately? I think what they're saying is, what we're looking at is, the question is, who is going to be in control? Are you going to be in control? Or are you going to let God be in control? See, Israel is saying, we know you can do these things. Now we want you to do them on our timetable. We want you to do them in the way we want them done and when we want them done. So that we'll be blessed in a way that makes sense to us. So clearly the nation of Israel chose not God. We look at the garden. Adam has everything. They have everything that they could ever want. Except for the one thing that they can't eat of the the fruit of the knowledge of, of good and evil. And what is Adam's response? You can't tell me what to do. I'm in charge here. I'm in control. I'll decide what I can eat and what I can't eat and when I can eat it. Adam's choice was not God. So the nation of Israel and and Adam, what we see is what they're asking for is a smaller God. They want a God who is answerable to them. And what are the consequences of those choices? Well, we've already talked about the consequences in the Garden of Eden. But here again, in the example of the nation of Israel, God gives them water. In fact, it's described as sweet water. It's pure. Jesus says he'll serve the Lord. God is in control. Nothing happens. Except he gets another test. So let's look at the third temptation. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these will I give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, it's pretty easy to get from this temptation to who will you serve. (laughs) So I'm not going to spend any time trying to make those connections, but. The first century church would have recognized that as coming from Genesis and Deuteronomy. They would have recognized it was part of the Ten Commandments. They would have thought about the nation of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. With Moses, 40 days, 40 nights, on the mountain, God present in a cloud. And they would have known that what they did was rise up a golden calf. 
they would have thought possibly of Samuel. When the nation of Israel, when the, the leaders, the elders go to Samuel and say, you know what? We don't want to judge anymore. We want a king like all those other nations. The opposite of being holy, they wanted to be like the world. And when Samuel said, no, you have a king. Your king is God. They said, no, no, no. We understand, but we want to be like them. So Samuel goes to God. And this is the response that God gives to Samuel to give to them. They have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. See, God realized, knew what to ignore was that it was all connected. It was all the fact that they kept saying, not God. Adam's response in the garden was pretty simple. Why was the fruit desirable? Because you could be like God. Adam could be like God. Again, both Israel and Egypt were prepared for, to allow God to be God, but on their terms. You can be God. But you just have to do these things. They wanted a smaller God. They wanted to serve a smaller king. I think the reason the last test is so blatant in what Satan asked Christ is because he realized with this person, I can't disguise it. He understands all the questions are the same thing. Will you serve Something that's not God, or will you serve God? So when Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve, at that time, Satan leaves. And one of the Gospels says, so that he could test him later. After that, we see the angels coming and ministering to Jesus. It'd be pretty easy to say, well, this is where God is blessing Jesus for having passed the test, for having been obedient, for having done the right thing. But I don't think that's really what we're seeing, because if it was, how do we explain the fact that Israel was disobedient and they got what they asked for? I think what we really see here is the fact that we serve a promise-keeping God. A God that... Fulfills his promises in his time, in his way, and in his manner. And that is the promise that Christ rested on. So that, I, but I do believe Christ received blessings. But these are the two blessings that I think he received. The first one is that because of this, he was able to begin his ministry. In the three Gospels that talk about the temptation of Christ, the passage immediately after this is entitled, Jesus Begins His Ministry. Because if Jesus had obeyed Satan at any of these points, 
then God would not be with us because God would not have been with Jesus. But Jesus walked in full obedience. And I think in this temptation, we also see how God prepared him for another time when he would be alone. A time just before the passion and just before the cross. When he would be alone again. The disciples would be sleeping. He would be able to turn to his father and say, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. He could walk in that obedience. He could believe and trust in that promise. And because of that obedience, that love that Christ gave us, that the Father gave us in giving us Christ, we're no longer sons of the first Adam, but we're sons of God. We are no longer the nation of Israel, but the nation of God. We are no longer the prodigal son, but heirs and co-heirs in Christ. You see, beloved, though they meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Because if you look at what Adam's disobedience meant, it meant that sin, sin entered into the world and we all fell. And where you may say, but that can't possibly be good. Think of this. Absent of that, our standing with God, our ability to have a relationship with God, would be dependent on our ability from the moment we draw our first breath until our last, that every thought, action, word, and deed be led in perfect obedience to God. That is just a horrifying thought to me. But we have a Savior. We have Christ's righteousness because of Adam's failure. When we look at the nation of Israel, God gave them the law. The law was an overseer over them, but they had the law. They had the priests. They had the prophets. And what we see in their whole journey is that no man will earn righteousness through his works. The law does not give us righteousness. We need a redeemer. And we know we have that in Christ. And then in the last temptation, we see Christ going to the cross. So we see the entire gospel. We are all sinners. We can't be saved on our own. And that Christ paid the price. When we look at that full picture, we can come together today in the full knowledge that we are right with God because in Christ we have a Savior, a prophet, a king, and a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, so that we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So if you're here today as a believer and you look at the, what Christ gave us in his life and in his death, we should know that it should change how we live. 
We're called to be a light to Wilmington and the world. And it's been said that we're called to preach the gospel every day. And where necessary, we're to use words. Which is the simple way of saying it is our life that is our testimony for Christ. It is our life that is the real gospel that the world sees. So that maybe today, we'll be called to offer forgiveness to someone that we have been withholding forgiveness from. Maybe today we will be called to offer aid to someone who has a need and maybe has never even asked, but we're aware. Maybe today we will offer friendship to someone who we would never offer friendship to because they're not like us. They don't look like us. They don't act like us. But Christ did all those things for us. Remember today as you leave that you may intersect someone who's in pain, who's in darkness, who's looking for a redeemer, for a savior, but they don't know how to articulate that. And that today you may be the only light of Christ they see. Make that interaction something that not only them, but others who would look on it would say, there is something different about that person, about those people. So that you would always know, and others might see, that the difference is that when you are asked, who will you serve? That you said, I will love the Lord, my God, with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my might. Him and him only will I serve. Because a life like that is a light in the darkness. Now, if you're here today and you've never accepted Christ, but you're struggling with some sin in your life, struggling with darkness, hopelessness, what I would tell you is that Christ came. He lived a life. And he gave his life so that you wouldn't have to struggle alone, so that you could have a redeemer and a savior. And if you simply ask Christ into your heart, that you will find something truly glorious. That long before Israel wandered in the desert and long before Adam fell in the garden, the God had already chosen you. I'd ask that you all uh, bow your heads and join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be the kingdom that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.